Happy Friday, folks. Senior Editor Mackenzie Taylor here on the Texans Weekly Roundup Podcast. This week, the team discusses Governor Greg Abbott's past and possible future in the highest statewide office in Texas. Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick stating rural schools would be bracketed out of school voucher programs. Beto O'Rourke's policy prescriptions and their popularity with Texan voters. Three Democrats on the border in South Texas hoping to fend off challenges from the GOP. O'Rourke possibly violating election laws with his rallies close to polling locations. The Republican and Democrat vying for an open house seat in Williamson County. Bernie Sanders stumping for Michelle Vallejo against Monica de la Cruz. A controversial campaign contribution to Congressman Henry Cuellar. Two incumbents clashing for the same South Texas seat. A rundown of which State Board of Education seats are on the ballot and Senator Roland Gutierrez planned to provide $300 million to Uvalde victims and families. As always, if you have questions for our team, DM us on Twitter or email us at editor at thetexan.news. We'd love to answer your questions on a future podcast. Thanks for listening and enjoy this episode. Well, howdy, folks. It's Mackenzie with Brad, Hayden, and Matthew. Matthew, I'm going to start with the podcast right off the top because I have a bone to pick with you. Uh-oh. I don't think you know why at all. Um, I don't. And I'm, you would have no idea these conversations are even happening here at the office. So Matt, for those who don't know, is in West Texas. He'll be joining our Austin team before the start of session so that he can be in the Capitol full-time here in Austin. But he's writing full-time for us in West Texas as of right now. And will be for about another month. Um, here's the thing. As we've gotten to know you, Matthew, I've gotten to know you better your sunny disposition has been uh, very fr- gloomy for Mac front and center. And I love it because I feel like we can kind of, we were both, we both have that, you know, sunny disposition and positivity. However, here's the problem. The boys have deemed you the most enthusiastic person on our team. And that means <laughs> I'm no longer that. And I'm angry about it. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> gosh shucks guys what can i say (laughs) and i'm really mad about it that's like something i take great pride in i'm turning bright blush red like the cowardly lion well we wouldn't be able to tell because you look like an anonymous source in a documentary or we can't even see your face in this light on the on the recording here but anyway i don't even remember who was the first to bring it up it was definitely can i do my anonymous source voice (laughs) your anonymous source voice (laughs) Should not be on this podcast. And I took great pride. There it is. Yeah, Brad was first to bring it up. I took great pride. Sorry, you had to hear that. He took great pride in it, and I'm still mad about it. So, as you can tell, the the reason this came about was uh, Mac usually starts the content call every morning, every Monday morning. Hi guys, how was your weekend? When we're all just dragging, (laughs) and then Matt comes along, and he's just like rearing to talk. And he outdoes you on the call. And that's why you have lost your crown, as it were. But I'm notorious. Also, can we just talk about how I told you guys to all mute your Slack? And then my Slack was the one that went off. (laughs) 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 Okay. Okay. I'm calling myself out here. Um, That's true. But I'm notoriously not a morning person. And we all know this. It's notorious. I feel like that's unfair. In some ways, Matt, though, is objectively more enthusiastic. Yeah. Like on Slack and your messages, you'll add a few exclamation points in mm-hmm. your messages. Matt will type in all caps with T 
10 exclamation points at the end. <laughs> I don't do, I go Yahoo with a bunch of O's. With a bunch of O's. And a dash and a Y, Yahoo-y. And then I put exclamation point. <laughs> Sometimes there are some ones mixed in with the exclamation points because you true. get a little carried away and don't. <laughs> Press the, <laughs> the shift button all the way down. It's true. <laughs> now it's become just like a stylistic choice. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. now it's become something. And I now do. she does it on purpose, and it's just funny. It's true. Well, Matt, I will, I will relinquish that crown to you. But other crowns I have, which I will think about what they are, I will not relinquish, and I will fight you tooth and nail for them. Well, I, I appreciate that. I'll, I'll, I'll take it for now, but I'll, I'll probably lose my sunny disposition when I, 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 I leave the beautiful ranch in West Texas for the People's Republic of Austin. Uh, <laughs> Understandable. Uh, Understandable. And then I will celebrate in the streets. <laughs> you'll, you'll retain your crown once again. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my Lanta. Well, let's jump into the news. Brad, we're going to start with you. We are nearing Election Day. It's next Tuesday. And after that, we'll know the future of Texas's top executive. Give us a preview of the articles that you wrote this week. So the first one was on Governor Greg Abbott. We did two kind of preview pieces, uh, one of each of the candidates. And um. This one was just kind of a, the theme I noticed was that a lot of crap has happened in the last three years. A lot. Yeah. And when you like list it all out, it's insane mm-hmm. to think about. Um, And so I just kind of list it all out. And um, you know how you go to some presidential libraries and you're like, okay, this not too much happened during this president's term. Yeah. If Governor Greg Abbott was to have a governor's library, governorship gubernatorial library it would have a lot of things and that's just from the last few years yeah in this piece and so you know a lot of it's abbott had no control over um at least it happening in the first place um obviously he controlled his reactions and uh a lot of people disagree on whether he made the right decisions on things like covid shutdowns or um the power grid it's obviously a big topic this in, in this race uh, but he's outlasted all of it. And at least right now, based on polling that's out there, he appears primed to to win a third term. And that kind of sets the table for a lot of policy fights down the road next session and probably beyond that. Um, he has a remarkable, remarkable ability to outpace the other statewides in in his races. Um, I think he won by 13 points in 2018 while the other statewide won by a lot closer margins, you know, Ted Cruz being first and foremost, uh, won by what 2% roughly. And so, um, I, I think it's, uh, it's just, he's an interesting candidate and he's overseen especially, and especially tumultuous few years here. Um, but, uh, we'll see where it goes from there, I guess. Well, and those big ticket items, those big events that have happened specifically have divided voters on both sides of the aisle too, Mm -hmm. which is, I think how this works often, but COVID for example, right? Republicans did not think governor Abbott kept things open in the way that he's touting now. They criticized his shutdowns mm-hmm. and the things that he decided not to do or to do like the, yeah. the statewide mask mandate. That's a huge point of contention. Yeah. Whereas Democrats are like, you did not do nearly enough. And that's yeah. a difficult thing to face in a general. 
Yes. Not not to mention a primary. Certainly the primary. And not was, to mention like, at the time, you know, you have a bunch of people uh, clamoring for different decisions on this. What do you do? Right. Um, it is that it, I guarantee you that is not a position he even somewhat envisioned himself being in before it happened. Mm-hmm. And then it happened. Um, the power grid. I mean, that's even something grid, yeah. that is which is so difficult to talk about because the state's the state's top executive certainly has power to shore up reliability in some ways for the power grid and texas is great indirectly but yes but that's yeah, what i'm saying the, like he has yeah. ability in some way or shape or form to influence what happens with the grid yes but it's more influence than direct policy making right because the legislature needs to anyway i have but that's well that on top of the fact that it was a crazy storm i mean we i have talked about this ad nauseum <laughs> shouldn't have on even this started this topic <laughs> um but you know who envisions like a hundred year storm like that uh, happening? It lasted hundred years, kids. That's not what I mean, but okay. <laughs> um, but you know, there was a lot of, especially on that one. There's a lot of bad luck. There's a lot of bad luck on on COVID. You know, like um, just it happening in the first place. What are the odds that uh, Governor Abbott was in that position when this global pandemic occurred? You know, um, Rick Perry wasn't could have happened just as easily back then uh that's only 10 uh 10 years ago and so um it's it's been i'm definitely there weren't things that you know again there's fault in, in a lot of different ways but it is so nuanced and there are so many shades of gray yes and political rhetoric and campaign ads will not tell you the full story. Right. And that is where it becomes so difficult for voters right. to discern, especially those in Texas who are undecided, which, albeit a small percentage of voters are undecided, regardless, those are still people that will have a big influence on Election yeah. Day. And the, the thesis of that, I recommend you go read the piece. Um, the thesis of it is that you know, despite all of this, he is still primed to, to win. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would be a shock if he were to lose next week, I think. Everyone is safe in saying that. Doesn't mean it won't happen. Doesn't mean it can't happen. But it would be very surprising. And despite all this crap that the world has thrown at Abbott, he's still in pole position to win this race. Absolutely. Well, we'll get into his challenger here in a minute. But Brad, thank you for that. And yes, folks, make sure to go to the Texan.news and read all about this. There's a lot of detail in these pieces Brad wrote that preview this race. So certainly go and check it out. Speaking of... Um, top positions in Texas. So let's talk about Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick Hayden. He changed course on what could be a key issue during the upcoming legislative session set to start in January. What did he have to say about school choice? Well, you're right. It could be a key issue in the upcoming session. Governor Abbott has made comments on the stump that signal he wants to advance school choice legislation, although he has been reticent about the issue because it's complicated for the reasons we're about to get into. Lieutenant Governor Patrick went on Chad Hasty's radio program earlier this week and tempered his position on school vouchers a little bit. He said that any legislation supported by him in the upcoming session would bracket out, is the phrase he used, rule school districts from school voucher programs. And of course, school vouchers are uh, funds that are available to families for them to take and uh, spend on private education rather than um, sending their kids to public school. And many are opposed to that idea, particularly lawmakers from rural areas, because it threatens the limited 
amount of taxpayer funds that uh, those rural school districts have. And school districts are often the largest employers in some of these uh, sparsely populated areas. So this is an important that's ish- that is an issue that is important to rural Texas. But uh, Patrick said that those districts would be bracketed out and uh, seem to be moderating his support for school choice ahead of the election. Democrat Mike Collier, uh, his opponent, has made public education a feature of his candidacy. What was his response to these remarks from the lieutenant governor? Well, Collier had uh, made this an issue long before Patrick brought it up this week, and Collier characterized it as a flip-flop. He called it backtracking and said it was just, quote, a last-minute hollow campaign promise designed to save himself. And Collier has been appealing to a more moderate position on many issues, but especially He's supported public education and said that he wants to increase funding for public schools, and he has not been shy about his support for public education. So Collier is characterizing it as a flip-flop, and he continued to criticize Patrick uh, for what he believes is an effort to, quote, privatize and profitize our public schools. Why is all of this politically significant the week before Election Day? Well, I went into this a little bit. With rural districts being more opposed to school voucher programs and uh, more moderate voters probably more inclined to support Collier and uh, Collier highlighting some a handful of Republican endorsements by mostly outgoing or retired politicians, uh, Patrick may be a little bit anxious about Election Day because it is not inevitable that he will win. He even said himself on his uh, radio appearance that the polls that say that he is 10 or 12 points ahead and that Abbott is 10 or 12 points ahead, he does not consider those polls to be accurate. And he stated that the polls he trusts only shows him about five or seven points ahead. And he said the same thing about the governor's race. So he was urging his supporters not to take the race for granted, to turn out to vote, and to encourage those who support his stances on the issues to also turn out and vote. Spicy stuff. Well, Hayden, thanks for covering that for us. Bradley, we're going to jump back to the governor's race. Your other preview piece is on the top of the ticket. Uh, this is Beto O'Rourke. You, w- you went through, talked about his candidacy, the policy issues that he's talking about. Give us a rundown of that piece. So Beto O'Rourke is now on his third high-level campaign for political office. You know, the first was 2018 against Senator Ted Cruz, the second 2020, very short-lived bid for president. We're and not then, counting his congressional um, right. bid in I would in put there. that rung below because yeah. um, he wasn't running across a whole state. Absolutely. And a lot of folks didn't even know who he was when he ran for, yeah. for Senate. Yeah, and now he is running for governor. And in that span, you know, well, I said it was a, a wild three years for, for Abbott, which in terms of governing, it absolutely was. For O'Rourke, politically, it's been a wild three years, four years, because of how much he has kind of shifted on his political views. Um, you know, everybody knows he presented a more moderate version of his of his positions against Senator Ted Cruz and very narrowly won or lost, almost won. Uh, you know, things like the, the very famous one is, um, and the most the most drastic change was on guns. You know, he didn't want to take any. AR-15s, AK-47s away in 2018. And then he said that he wanted to in the presidential primary. And during this race, he's gone back and forth on that. 
Um, he has solidified his opinion of late, uh, probably since about June. He's he's had his his position. Um, but it's that while he would like to remove those kinds of weapons from communities, he recognizes that there's no chance of that with a Republican legislature, and even with a a kind of um, competitive Democrat-controlled one, that would be pretty politically diff- difficult to pull off as well. So. Um, not to mention the implications of does the constitution even allow you to do this? Um, so he has had quite a, an odd journey on a bunch of different policy positions. Um, and so going into this race, he is running from behind quite a bit and he hasn't, he's lost a lot of the momentum he had in the summer right after the Uvalde shooting and after the overturning of Roe. Um, that was the the closest point of of polls that I saw. He was about five points behind in a few of them back to back, and that's since grown to now it's like nine points. Uh, the real clear politics polling average, and so, um, it seems like if if things hold, you know, his third bid will not be the charm. Um, you know, third time will not be the charm, and so, uh, where does it go from here? I I don't know, but he's he's said consistently that he just. He feels like he belongs in the um, the political process, running for office, and right now Democrats don't have a big bench, if any bench at all, and so in Texas, in Texas, and so there's very little indication that this will be his last campaign if he does in fact lose. And to be fair, ask any elected official, and they'll tell you the only way to run for office is unopposed, and with. Uh, Abbott facing somebody in the general as prolific in terms of fundraising and organizing and just building a momentum that we haven't really seen in Texas on the Democrat side. That's not something to shy away from. So certainly, absolutely, if you look at the numbers, it is a it's an underdog effort for Beto O'Rourke. But don't also count out what this means for down ballot races, what this looks like in terms of election day for folks in, even though there aren't as many swing districts for folks in those swing districts in the more suburban areas. We just don't know what this will look like now. Trends all point, just like you said, to a strong win for many Republicans in Texas and across the country. It's a different environment. It's an entirely different environment. But at the same time, you just can't count out somebody with this kind of momentum messaging and support. I mean, the the number of people I just and again, we're in Austin. It's a bubble. It's an absolute political bubble. But the number of people I see out there with merch yeah. <laughs> for a candidate in political office is absolutely unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, there is a movement behind this this person that I did not think would pick up the steam it has after his presidential bid when he made a lot of those very uh, difficult to circumvent political positions that would typically kind of nail your coffin in texas even for a democrat well and sorry and i just want to add because you can't discount the role of name id in this because to brett's point democrats don't have a lineup of people with all this name id that they can run in the state of texas and like mac is just saying when beto gets out there and he campaigns for himself he's also campaigning for all democrats in texas and so, uh, Brad, I think you're exactly right. If Beto were to bow out of Texas politics because he loses this governor's race, that would leave a major gap that I don't know how Democrats would fill next cycle, yeah. even in two years from now. And there are two two Senate seats coming up for election, in, one in 24, one in 26. And so I find it hard to believe that 
he won't run for either of those if he doesn't win this. Right. Um, as far as his, his campaign, you know, he has lost a lot of momentum since that he had in, in the summer, but he still has raised a lot of money and he has drawn a lot, a lot of crowds to Constance in his campaigns for office. Um, it, he has, at least as of, like, as of February, he had 44,000 volunteers and across the whole state. Uh, that's, that's still a lot of people. Um, and so he's very clearly the top, um, the, the heaviest hitter among de- Democrats in Texas. It's just, it's looking like that he'll come up short again, um, both because of the candidate he's running against and the, um, the prevailing winds of, of, you know, what's going on nationally and and globally. If you don't mind me interjecting, I'd like to throw in one uh, detail about the impact Beto has had running, and that is the impact on down ballot races. Yeah. Uh, You know, we saw last time he ran against Ted Cruz, uh, a, a lot of appellate courts flipped from red to blue, a lot of down ballot races. And so even even if Beto uh, doesn't win this race, doesn't win a future race, I, I think there's a large benefit to the party pushing him to run again if they still see that impact on down ballot races. Yeah. Well, and I will, to your point, Matt, say a Democrat losing repeatedly in Texas does not carry the same political shame that a Republican losing repeatedly in texas has they're already at a disadvantage they're viewed very much as the underdog attempting to win for the people that they're attempting to represent that's just how the the party leading state yes and if a republican loses they get drugged through the mud absolutely for sure as they should i mean it's uh, that's just the nature of it your voter base is entirely (laughs) different right like if you are on a statewide ballot in texas and you lose to a democrat that's a whole other topic. It hasn't happened in 30 years. It hasn't happened in 30 years. If you're a Democrat, you can rally the troops behind you again because they know it's a losing battle. Mm-hmm. And eventually one day you might win, right? It's a totally different narrative, which makes sense. It makes sense. Yeah. So <laughs> again, I recommend you go read that, that article. Um, it's, it's been a fascinating race to follow, even though it's not quite as competitive as maybe we thought it would turn out to be. Uh, you know, it's not, 2018 Cruz v. Beto. It's yeah. just not. Totally and different. So, um, but still, it's something that... It's a high-profile race. Yeah. He's still making the late-night TV rounds. There's still a lot of national attention, Hollywood, mm-hmm. fundraisers that are happening, support you know, on social media from folks all over the country. So it is well, very... He's getting a lot of free concert tickets. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was, that's the other thing I was thinking that I couldn't remember. That's right. Um, Unfortunately... Yeah. Harry Styles and and Willie Nelson cannot outdo a uh, you know inflation at eight <laughs> percent, but it might help a little. Maybe it I, might help a little. I, I I wonder how much it actually helps. I actually but. do too. Yeah, who knows? But regardless, well, we could opine on this all day. But Brad, thank you so much, and certainly, folks, make sure to go to the Texan News and read all about it. And hey, if you enjoy our podcast each week, subscribe to the Texan. We're not funded by corporate interests or big donors, so we rely on the subscriptions of everyday Texans to keep churning out news. We will opine on this model later on in the podcast, so make sure to stay tuned, but it is so important to subscribe. When you do subscribe, you'll get access to stories like all the ones we've been discussing on this podcast as soon as they're published so that you can stay informed, up to speed, and ready to vote at the ballot box. A subscription is $9 monthly, but you can save by purchasing an annual subscription for $90. 
which comes out to just $7.50 per month. And we just brought back a fan favorite merch item. You've heard us talk about it before. New subscribers will now get a free Fake News Stops Here mug, by far our most popular item of all time. For more details, visit the texan.news forward slash subscribe or click the URL in the description of this podcast. Let's jump back to the stories. Brad, let's keep talking about about Beto O'Rourke. This is a totally different story than we just talked about, but he has held get out the vote rallies, GOTV rallies at precincts and come under some criticism. Give us the details. So every day, multiple times a day, O'Rourke has been, his campaign has been holding these uh, rallies at polling locations across the state, uh, you know, places from Dallas and Austin to the Rio Grande Valley, um, all over the place, big and small. And he's just basically giving his elevator pitch, you know, rah, rah, let's get to the polls. Let's vote me as the next governor. Vote me. Woo. Um, but a couple of these, at least a couple, have been criticized for being a little too close to the actual polling precinct. And um, there is a there are two laws that are on the books of note here. The first is that you cannot electioneer within 100 feet of the door of the polling precinct or the voting precinct. And then the other one is you cannot use, you cannot electioneer while using uh, a megaphone or some sort of loudspeaker within a thousand feet of that precinct. Um, video uh, surfaced on, on social media of, of um, uh, well, actually it was, he, it was his own video, like his campaign live streams, all of these things. And uh, they were on the steps of a precinct in of a library that is serving as a precinct in San Juan and it looks a little too close to the door um there's also another video of Monica De La Cruz congressional candidate there visibly upset about how close they are and um the uh, another instance occurred in Waco where O'Rourke was using a, a he's speaking into a microphone that was then blasting out on a loudspeaker talking about giving his pitch and that was well within thousand feet of the um the uh, uh the precinct and the waco or the uh, what county is waco in waco mclennan thank you mclennan county gop filed a complaint about that um to my knowledge there has not been one filed of against them for the incident in san juan i looked at various recordings and there's at least one more um, in Nueces County in Corpus Christi, that the the little um, huddle, the 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 group that he had, the rally was at least on the edge of the hundred foot line, um, maybe crossing it. I don't, I'm not sure. Again, no um, no complaint has been filed against that, but uh, it just seems like they are they have not really paid close attention to what they're doing on this and it is would be a violation of election code like it's there for a reason um whether you think it's important or not um it's there in statute and so he's catching some flack for that i did hear from um after this the san juan video made the rounds he was still in the rgv and i heard from someone in harlingen who was at the rally that they were just outside the 100 foot radius and so um it seems like they have corrected at least for now, but we'll see if that continues. There you go. Thank you, Bradley. 
Matthew, we are coming to you. Um, three Democrat incumbent lawmakers whose districts include parts of the southern border with Mexico are facing Republican challengers. We've been rolling out election pieces all this week, last week, kind of focusing in on some of these general election races that are more contentious. There are fewer that are contentious than during the primary because it's after redistricting, right? We have diff- we have uh, fewer races that are as tight as maybe the primaries would be politically. Um, but regardless, these are three very interesting districts uh, to keep an eye on. Tell us what's going on there and what is the big issue for voters? No, that's right, Mackenzie. Whenever we were looking at all the different races up and down Texas's, Texas's border with Mexico, uh, three of these races really stood out. Um, one of them is the longest border district in the Texas legislature. Um, all three of these particular districts have Democratic incumbents, and they are also among some of the most competitive races Uh this November. Um, the three starts off with uh, district House District 74, uh, which is presently held by incumbent state representative Eddie Morales. Uh, he's facing Republican uh, businesswoman from Alpine, Catherine Parker, for that seat. Uh, and if you're not familiar with that district, it, it runs some 770 miles, uh, nearly touching El Paso, on one end and, and running past Del Rio to the, to the Eastern side. Uh, in Senate district 19, Democrat Senator Roland Gutierrez is facing Republican challenger, Robert Garza. And lastly, with a Senate district 20, uh, incumbent state Senator Juan Chuy Hinosa, I think I pronounced that right, has a challenger in Republican candidate, Wesley Wright. Uh, we wanted to highlight these three races, particularly because of how multiple recent polls show border security is a top issue this election for Texas voters. Uh, and with all three of these districts sharing a sizable portion of the southern voter, uh, of the southern border, we thought it would be interesting to highlight how and if this issue impacts this race, especially with the fact that these races hold relatively, while the Democrats hold leads, uh, it's fairly narrow whenever you look at it in the competitive light statewide. Uh, So far, Morales and Hinosa have taken fairly moderate tones on the issue of border security. Uh, From what we can tell, Senator Gutierrez is not. Uh, However, all three of the Republican candidates have been campaigning on border security very strongly, especially in light of how the, the crisis continues to get worse. Yeah, absolutely. Worth checking out. And South Texas in general is going to be a fun area to watch. Both sides of the aisle have uh, a lot to say, <laughs> a lot of money being poured into that area. And these border districts are a little bit adjacent to that and very fascinating to watch regardless. But Matt, thanks for your coverage. A great piece to check out at the Texan.news. Brad, one of the state house races to watch next week is in Williamson County, uh, very different from the border districts. Tell us about it and why it's notice- no- notable. So House District 52 is notable because it's one of the seats that Republicans lost in the 2018 Beto wave. Uh, James Tallarico, uh, Democrat state rep, um, he won that, flipped it, and has been serving that ever since. Now, it is open because he has decided to uh, jump across county lines and run for an open Austin seat. 
uh, he did this because, well, redistricting happened, and the district that was like D53, according to our ratings, changed to R55. So it's still competitive, but it is definitely more Republican favoring. And so with Tallarico, um, now in Austin, this Williamson County seat that encompasses Taylor, most of Taylor, most if not all of Taylor, uh, is up for election. And so um, it's up for grabs. And the two candidates running are Republican Caroline Harris, who is a Senate staffer for Senator Brian Hughes, and Democrat Luis Echegaray. Um And so uh, they are duking it out, although the Democrat is, he's not raised a lot of money. He, he didn't reply to my request for an interview, so I can't really tell you much about him other than what's on his website. <laughs> um, but he's fairly progressive. Um, you know, this is one of those suburban seats that you typically see more of the uh, conservative uh, or at least conservative leaning Republican against a progressive or progressive leaning Democrat. And so that's kind of the situation here, I would say. Um, but Republicans have put a lot more resources into this behind Harris. She won a very competitive primary and won the runoff against Patrick McGinnis. But at, at root of all of the district's big issues is the fact that it is booming in population. Um, I think it's the it's at least one of, if not the fastest growing counties in the entire state in a state that is fast growing. So, um, you know, things like zoning, um, how do you prepare for population growth in that? That's, I wrote about that previously in Taylor. Um, that's something if Harris wins, she'll have to contend with there at least tangentially. Um, she mentioned infrastructure is a really big issue. Um, that makes total sense when you have a booming population. Um, but also she has said she's heard concerns of, uh, about like the border uh, as she said what happens at the border doesn't stay at the border people that come across go elsewhere throughout the state she said that has that even happens in central texas in austin in williamson county so uh check out the piece to see more of what she's what she believes is um is important and also put in some of the democrats priorities uh that he lists on his website but uh, it's definitely a race i'm going to be watching and if Republicans can win this. If Harris wins, it, they will regain one of the seats they lost in 2018. It'd be very interesting to see. I will say, folks, on election night, if you want the best coverage in the state, make sure to check out the Texan. We will have a decision desk powered uh, election results tracker and it'll go up in the morning, but we'll have it uh, as soon as 7 p.m. rolls around. Election results will start. We'll start uh, filing in for the evening and we'll have it all right at the texan.news so make sure to look out for that as well as just coverage the entire night from the reporters they will be throughout the state attending watch parties check out their twitters it'll be there'll be a lot happening so if you want firsthand accounts of what's going on make sure to follow our guys and gals on twitter as well as um just check out the texan.news for all the election coverage we've got it all Shameless plug, Hayden, um, speaking of more elections, a big name on the left weighed in on one of the congressional races that Republicans hope to pick up on Election Day. Tell us about Bernie Sanders' recent trip to South Texas. Bernie Sanders, the independent U.S. senator from Vermont and unsuccessful Democratic candidate for uh, president, 
came to South Texas and stumped for Michelle Vallejo, who is running against Republican Monica de la Cruz, who also unsuccessfully ran for Congress in 2020. Bernie Sanders was touting many of the progressive positions that he shares with Vallejo. He said, quote, we need Vallejo in Congress to fight for an agenda that represents the working people of Texas, good paying union jobs, Medicare for all, and protecting a woman's right to choose, end quote. Sanders also campaigned for Greg Kasar, who is an Austin City Council member running in Congressional District 35. Uh, Sanders was pulling his progressive weight uh, behind him. And uh, remember, Sanders is a self-described democratic socialist. Uh, He uh, was endorsing these two candidates as Republicans are hoping to pick up this seat. And um, this seat is currently occupied by uh, Vicente Gonzalez, who is now running in a different district against uh, Myra Flores. So that's why this is uh, somewhat of an, it it is an open seat. Uh, but it is currently held by Democrats. Um, De La Cruz did respond to the criticism. She said, quote, by campaigning with the most extreme member of the Senate, my socialist opponent is telling us exactly who she is and why why we must reject her radical agenda. And De La Cruz is a staunch conservative. She backs many of the policy positions of President Trump and says she wants to bring back things like the Remain in Mexico policy, and uh, the she also supports the border wall. So um, she, she contrasts that with her opponent, Vallejo, who is staunchly opposed to uh, Trump's immigration policies and who supports abortion rights and is now campaigning with um, Bernie Sanders. So neither of them are making any pretense that they are moderate or appealing to the center. They are both starkly contrasting candidates, and Sanders' appearance in South Texas very much highlights that. What are Republicans' odds in this district? Well, it is favorable ground for Republicans. The Cook Political Report uh, rates it a likely Republican victory, but it is also a D52% on the Texans' Texas Partisan Index, so it is not to be taken for granted by either party. And uh, like I said, Congressman Gonzalez represents the seat, but he is running in a different district after redistricting against uh, uh, incumbent Myra Flores, who won in a special election. So neither De La Cruz or Vallejo carries the benefit of incumbency, um, and they neither of them carry the benefit of a district that favors one party or the other very strongly. So this is a classic toss-up race between two political newcomers uh, in the sense that neither of them are are currently elected officials. So it is one that will likely be one of the tests for if Republicans are going to continue their trend of making gains in South Texas or if South Texas voters will lean on their familiar support for Democrats. Certainly. Hayden, great coverage. Thank you so much. Brad, um, the second- Me again? Gosh. Do you, want, do, you, do you want to just take a little break? Yes. No, okay. Go ahead. Um, the second of the notable congressional races this year is Texas 34. Why is it, why is it such an odd situation in particular? Well, because you have two incumbents running against each other, which is not a usual. How is that possible? I'm glad you asked, you know, you know, I just thought it might be worth asking. So, uh, as, 
Hayden kind of alluded to earlier. I'm sorry, I kind yeah, of yeah, you stole my thunder. <laughs> I stole there. your thunder. I didn't look ahead. I'm I will, sorry. I will hold a grudge for a <laughs> long time. Me. <laughs> uh, you have Texas uh, Congressional District 34, newly drawn, um, as all of them are after redistricting. But uh, Republican Myra Flores, who is the incumbent, won the special election over the summer, and so she's been in office for a few months. And then you have Vicente Gonzalez, who is currently representing Texas 15, who decided to jump ship and run for Texas 34. They are, I think, adjacent, the districts are, but um, they're not, of the old Texas 15, not much, if any, is in this Texas 34. And so neither candidate really has the benefit of what incumbency brings. Um, being on the ballots in front of voters for a long time um, that they will see again. The name ID thing. Uh, Flores was on it in one special election. Gonzalez was on the ballot in a different district. Um, and so I that's the reason I find it notable. Uh, it's also, I think, like D60 roughly, maybe slightly more for, uh, in terms of our ratings. But Republicans are putting a lot of resources into this along with the other congressional districts. But I think uh, I haven't calculated it out, but I think uh, money in terms of just sheer money, more is probably going to this one than the others. And they want to protect the, the incumbent they have uh, Myra Flores, uh, you know, as, as um, recent as her incumbency is, they want to keep that seat and especially in South Texas. So uh, the race has gotten pretty heated. I talk about a little bit of it, in the piece so i recommend you you check that out um but neither candidate is really holding much back they're they're both going at it and um you know next on tuesday the let the chips fall where they may and we'll see absolutely thank you bradley hayden let's talk about the third very (laughs) spicy race here the race for texas 28 recently got heated after a years-old issue was dredged up. Tell us about this controversial campaign contribution to Congressman Henry Cuellar. National Review ran a piece that highlighted something that happened years ago, and they relied on reporting by the San Antonio Express News about a campaign contribution that a the wife of a convicted Mexican criminal made to Congressman Cuellar's campaign during his first term in office. And this, the convicted criminal I referenced, was convicted afterward, years later. He was not a convicted criminal at the time. And these individuals were associated with the Los Zetas drug cartel. And the, um, the Mexican individual who was later convicted was said to be a conduit or a middleman between Los, the highest levels of the Los Zetas drug cartel and Mexican politicians. But we're talking about a $1,000 campaign contribution made by this uh, this criminal's wife to Congressman Cuellar's campaign, which the congressman said at the time, uh, his team said, was uh, donated to charity. The um, criminal himself also made a $1,500 contribution to Sheriff Martin Cuellar, who is the congressman's brother and the sheriff of Webb County. So these two contributions were the focus of the Express News reporting more than 10 years ago, and National Review is bringing this back up. Uh, Republican Cassie Garcia, who is challenging Cuellar uh, in Texas 28, 
highlighted this as evidence of corruption. She is seeking to cast him as somehow associated with the Las Vegas drug cartel because of these contributions. And she is very much uh, leaning also on uh, a raid of Congressman Quayer's home by the FBI earlier this year in connection to a campaign finance uh, investigation. He was not necessarily a suspect in that investigation, though it's possible he is. Uh, she's using all of this uh, as a panoply of things to tell the voters that he is corrupt and uh, deserves to be voted out of office. What was Quayer's response? Quayar pointed out a couple of facts, um, but he said, first of all, because of the age of the story, this is something that was known long ago. Uh, this happened in his first term. He is uh, now running for his 10th term. Um, and he said that uh, the he reiterated that the donation was uh, given to charity. And his campaign put out a statement in response to the National Review story and uh, Garcia's allegations. Uh, they said, quote, Cassie Garcia has resurfaced a 10-year-old story and launched a blatantly false ad just seven days before Election Day in a desperate attempt to smear Congressman Cuellar's reputation and save her losing campaign, end quote. And he also pointed out that the individual in question, uh, who the couple in question, they also had uh, close relationships with Governor Rick Perry and President George W. Bush. And uh, even Senator Eddie Lucio, who's still in office and has endorsed Dan Patrick this cycle. So this is a, a case, a criminal case connected to the Los Sedas drug cartel that touched a lot of different elected officials who had uh, relationships with this person. They weren't just Democrats and it wasn't just Cuellar. So they were pointing that out as well. And of course, candidates, they said this at the time, but candidates can't possibly vet every single donation that is made to their campaign uh, that most of them have functions on their website where anyone can go uh, accused of a crime or not and and donate to their campaigns. Uh, so this is not proof of corruption, but uh, something that uh, Garcia is is linking to his candidacy. And it is always beneficial for a challenger to be able to uh, cast their opponent as uh, a corrupt creature of DC. And that's a common a common strategy for for challengers. Certainly, there's some mailers in the works as soon as that was uh, drudged back up. Thank you, Hayden, for that coverage. Matt, we're coming back to you for some more election coverage. Numerous seats on the State Board of Education are on the ballot this election. Can you give us a quick overview of your story coming out on this race? That's right, Mackenzie. For those that don't know, the State Board of Education is a 15-member statewide agency made up of uh, 15 elected board members from individual districts around the seat. Each district is comprised of about 1.8 million constituents, and the SBOE members are generally elected to four-year terms. However, this year with redistricting, we will have uh, a number of them selected to serve shorter two-year terms, and then for the remainder of the decade, they will continue on their four-year staggered terms. A little bit of an overview before our story actually publishes this afternoon. Uh, there are about three seats on the SBOE that are currently held by Democrats, but are the most statistically vulnerable seats this election. Uh, in addition, uh, 
polls and the Texas uh, partisan index shows that Republicans are in a really strong position to retain control uh, of not only retain control uh, this Tuesday of, of the SBOE, but could potentially pick up a couple of more seats. Of course, we'll have more details about which seats and where and all the great statistics and data in our story this afternoon on the Texan. Wonderful, Matt. Thanks for covering all that for us. Certainly uh, races that oftentimes go under the radar. So a great thing to check out and make sure that you are an informed voter before you hit the ballot box if you haven't already. Hayden, we're coming to you for the last story of the day here. Um, Senator Roland Gutierrez announced a bill to provide compensation to Uvalde victims. What is the outline of this legislation? At a news conference uh, this week, Senator Gutierrez, who represents uh, Uvalde, he's a Democrat from San Antonio, but he represents the area where the uh, horrific murders of 21 people, including 19 children, occurred at Robb Elementary School. And he is going to file legislation to provide compensation for the families of the victims of that tragic event, as well as the families and those who were injured and others affected as well. He proposed $300 million worth of, of compensation and damages. He said that uh, there will be uh, bill filing opens up for lawmakers later this month, even though session won't officially begin until Tuesday, January 10. They will be able to file bills. And in his bill, uh, he said there will be included uh, proposed $7.7 million for those who uh, were killed in the shooting, $2.1 million for those who were injured and their families, and then a quarter million dollars maximum for those who were on campus and, and traumatized by the, the shooting as well. And all of that was included in his bill. The 7.7 7 signifies the 77 minutes that delay um, before law enforcement confronted the gunman and the 21, the 2.1 million signifies the 21 uh, victims. And he said that that's why those numbers were proposed. And then he went into some other things that um, were ancillary to the, the dollar amounts as well. Why is he seeking punitive damages against the state? Well, as we know from the preliminary report that was published this summer, uh, there were more than 90 state troopers and state police officers there on scene. I believe it was the second largest uh, law enforcement presence uh, in terms of which agencies were there. Um, and they had, uh, according to Gutierrez, a responsibility to act. And he used a lot of different terms that he transparently said were designed to add, give credence to the idea that there was negligence and that they should be held liable for this. And he believes that the state should be punished for what happened in Uvalde and that this bill is not just designed to be con compensatory for the victims and their families, but it is also intended to be punitive for the state of Texas. Why can't Uvalde victims go to court and get a judgment in their favor? The traditional way of doing this would be to sue and to seek a judgment in favor of these victims. But because of, according to Gutierrez, because of qualified immunity and Texas tort law, uh, the odds of that happening would be very low or non-existent. So this, this process of uh, filing legislation 
to compensate people for a tragedy. It's not unheard of. It, it has happened in cases such as with 9-11. I believe there is federal legislation to compensate those uh, who were affected by that. Uh, but it is r- more rare than somebody going to court and getting a judgment um, for for something like this. Um, he did touch on the election, so this was not just about what happened in Uvalde. He said he would focus uh, on Uvalde during the regular session and that this his efforts in next session would be committed to them. Uh, but he also said it's presumptuous to assume that uh, Abbott will win on Tuesday and that there could be a new governor uh, on election day. And he didn't he did not reference his Republican opponent, but as Matt brought up, he is facing a Republican opponent um, in his district. So politics were not completely left out of this event, but it was primarily focused on going over this three hundred million dollar bill to compensate Uvalde victims. Got it. Wow. Well, we will be looking forward to the legislative session to watch so many of these issues be hashed out among the legislative members. So fascinating to watch. Um, Thank you, Hayden, for your coverage. Okay, gentlemen, instead of tweetery this week, we're going to do some election predictions, just hot takes, some things that we think are going to happen or just general thoughts. Let's just chat about the election. Um, Hayden, what is your prediction slash hot take? I'm not going to violate my policy of refraining from saying who I think will win. (laughs) Um, But I will say that I think Patrick is in real trouble. I think this whole school voucher thing has probably ticked off a lot of people. And I say that because uh, Glenn Rogers, in his runoff with Mike Olcott, made this a huge issue. And despite everything that's going on with Biden and illegal immigration and inflation and all of that, uh, Rogers was still able to pull off a victory over Olcott and an area where there are a lot of conservatives. So if Patrick is concerned and he's on the radio saying, this is a close race, I don't believe the polls that say I'm way ahead. And with him changing course at the last minute, Collier has a point that this is a little bit of a backtrack. Um, it's not as he's, he's placing a limiting value on his support for school vouchers, which I'm just in a debate context. Anytime you're limiting your own stance, that's that's not a position of strength. That's a position of weakness um, in in a debate. So with Patrick out there kind of trying to rein in um, and calm everyone down with his support for, for school vouchers and school choice, um, I think Collier is in a strong position before Election Day. Uh, again, I'm not saying that he's going Patrick is going to lose, but I think there's a, this is a competitive uh, race. And um, it's more competitive than you might expect in a red state, in my opinion. Do you think Paxton or Patrick will have the closer margin? I don't want to say which one I think will have a closer margin, but I think Paxton has done a better job of fending off uh, the criticisms that Garza has lobbed. Uh, he's, he's certainly more used to it. You he know? is more used to it. He has done a very good job of um, dismissing the for instance, the criminal case against him, he's done a very good job of dismissing all of it as media smear. And for instance, when he was criticized for uh, trying to uh, allegedly dodge this this subpoena that was being served on him, he reframed it as a Second Amendment issue where he was trying to protect his wife from this, this unfamiliar uh, individual that was coming to his home. And I thought that was a very successful uh, rebuttal. And the media didn't really talk about it more after that because that was his response to that um patrick just days before the election bringing this up 
um, that to me is, is very different than what Patrick has faced because everything that, 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 excuse me, Patrick Paxton, uh, everything that Paxton has had to deal with is a very familiar ground for him. Um, this radio appearance by Patrick was, was eyebrow raising. Yeah, certainly. Interesting takes. We like it. Uh, Matthew, what do you got for us in terms of uh, a hot take or a prediction come election night? Um, well, I, I hate making predictions. Uh, I'm usually, <laughs> then a hot take. I'm, I'm usually wrong. Uh, Ditto. because that's it's so hard to make a prediction on election because how uh, you you have to look past your own biases right mm-hmm. you know and really take a neutral look and 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 try and figure out and look past everybody else's biased opinions to really try and get a good feel for what's going on and by the time like it really takes some talent to look past all the different bias and figure things out. I'll say this, a pretty good rule of thumb in Texas elections is there's, there's not a lot of surprises. Really? Interesting. But surprises do happen. Yeah. Surprises. I feel like in general elections, I see what you're saying. Like a really, really big statewide surprise. Yeah. That's, that's well, I can think of one in the primary, Jim Wright in 2020. Yeah, sometimes sure. primary surprises happen, but they're like in districts and things like that. Like, I'm, no, that was know, a statewide race, Matt. Yeah. But which one Which one is that? He, the, said, he said Jim Wright. Oh, yeah. That wasn't really like a really big surprise, though, because like Sitton didn't really campaign and just kind of it just happened. Um you know, I guess he assumed his incumbency would would carry him through. Which, yeah, in a in a in a in a primary, if you twiddle your fingers and you don't do anything, yeah, yeah you could you could you can lose a primary. But like Republican versus Democrat, big time general election, you know, all that sort of stuff. There's just no surprises. Yeah. It, it, it just that is a hot take. That yeah. is a hot take, Matt. Especially the Jim Ryan. It's a hot take. But it's good. It's good. That's why we're talking about it. Brad is uh, Brad has an entirely different opinion about Jim Wright, which is fun. That is spicy. I enjoy it. I mean, I just think that nobody expected that. And if you say you are now, it's because it's with the benefit of hindsight, Matthew. So. I mean, Sitton had how many millions of dollars in his war chest and how much yeah. did he spend? Not a lot of it, but he spent loads more than Jim Wright did. So... I mean, there's yeah, obviously a reason it happened. Sitting, sitting bungled it, but I just, I just object to the fact to the to the contention that it was not shocking. So, uh, it 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 was it was interesting, but it wasn't shocking. Okay, we'll agree to disagree. That's, 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 <laughs> a, that's at least a click or two down. Um, a click or two okay. down. Brad, what's your hot take? Uh, well, I mean, I already basically said I think Abbott's going to win. Um when discussing those, those preview pieces, but I would, you know, stuff happens. Um, I think the thing I'm really going to uh, drill down on is in the governor's race, I think O'Rourke will win Harris County by a slimmer margin 
I guess a better way to put this, Abbott will lose Harris County by a slimmer margin than he lost it in 2018. He lost it by six points. Uh, there's been recent polling that shows it's a lot closer. And the reason why, in my opinion, that that is notable is Harris County is the largest county in the state. So O'Rourke needs to win that pretty substantially in order to have any shot. And he's focused um, a lot of his campaign on trying to cut into Republicans' advantage in rural areas. Well, if you lose Har- if you win Harris County by two points instead of six points, that's going to cut into basically any of the gains you may make if he does make any in rural Texas. And so uh, we see the issue, the public safety issues there that are making the county judge race very, very competitive. Uh, I think that same dynamic will play in to the governor's race, maybe not quite to the degree because uh, Beto did not have any say over Harris County's bail policies, right? But he's made similar statements and that uh, police defunding statement that he made when Minneapolis was trying to nix its entire department, um, that is being run on loop by the Abbott campaign. And I guarantee you it's especially being focused in Harris County because that pu- those public safety issues are so huge there right now. So I think Abbott will do, will make, uh, will improve upon his loss margin from 2018 in Harris County. There's, there's my die marker for you. Interesting. How shocked would you be if he won Harris County versus just making If he won, I would be shocked if he won. Would you I be think, as shocked if if who he, won if if Abbott won Harris County as if Demoral Mueller won Harris? Because I'm curious about that. If there are people who will go in yeah. and vote for Demoral Mueller yeah. for county judge and then vote for Abbott for or vote for Beto for governor, I would be more surprised if Abbott were to win yeah. the county than I agree. If Mueller would. Uh, but I think the same dynamic is at play, and maybe not quite to the degree that it is in the county judge race. Because it is yeah. the localized position there. And all the other issues that are playing into this, you know, the, the corruption accusations, all this stuff in, in Hidalgo's office. But um But no, I but I can see I can see somebody going in and voting for Dunmoral Mueller and then leaving the governor spot blank or or voting for or Beto. voting for yeah, Beto. I, I can see that too. I cannot see somebody going in and voting for Lena Hidalgo and also voting for Adam. Right. Yeah. That, totally. that to me is not I mean, it could happen. I just don't see it. Very good point. Yeah. Yeah. So that's something to watch that I will have a piece on things to watch uh, (laughs) on Monday morning. And this is one of them. So uh, a plug there for you. I'm going to plug another thing on that because I am super curious to see what the margin of this is not even this is not a prediction. This is not a hot take. This is just something I'm looking at specifically that Brad, you and I have talked about is the margin between Abbott and Beto. And the margin that Beto versus Cruz was back in 2018. I'll be very curious to know what the spread is there. They're very different. Both in percent uh, and raw numbers? Yes. Um, like turnout will play a huge role. And yeah. you got to take everything with a grain of salt. But even just the percentage, the spread will be interesting to see. Um, I'm very curious. And those were both, I mean, those are midterm elections. They're very different. Obviously, with... Um, you know, Trump in the White House, there was the disadvantage to Republicans in that cycle. So it is an entirely different race. 
I'm still very curious to see what that ends up being on election day. Um, yeah. And, and as of earlier this week, uh, maybe we'll have some more updated numbers um, by the end of the week, but uh, Texas was on track for like 36% turnout. And in that 2018 race, it had 53% turnout. So that right there does not bode well for Democrats. Mm-hmm. It's just an unenthusiastic year. Um, which the enthusiasm is what drove many, many people to uh, the polls in 2018. And there was this electricity surrounding Beto's rise. Right? Yeah, I mean, he definitely has so a different. lot to play in that. Yeah. It wasn't just Donald Trump. He definitely benefited from it. But yeah. Um, yeah. So and that version of Beto was a different one than the version of Beto on the ballot this year. Certainly. Very interesting. Okay, folks. Well, we are nearing the end of our podcast. But for our fun topic today, I want to get on a soapbox for a little bit. And I'm inviting you boys to join me on it. We get a lot of requests each and every week to take certain articles out from behind our paywall. Now, we have the paywall in place so that folks are encouraged to subscribe. You still get one free article a month. If you come and click on our website, you'll get to read something for free before you hit the paywall. We certainly understand that a lot of folks may have interest in one article and may not return to the site again. That's just kind of the nature of browsing the internet. But we have it there because we don't want to be able to be beholden to big donors, to folks who can kind of tell us what direction to move our reporting in. We don't want to be... We see how that's playing out in another uh, organization in Texas. 100%. We don't want to be um, dealing with the nonprofit part of this where there's that reporting aspect where... Um, folks are donating and then all of a sudden a reporter shows up from uh, that reports on the issues that a giant donor cares about. We just don't want to have to deal with those things. We don't want to have advertisers that we are beholden to or even advertisers that if we publish an article that the masses may be angry about, that they can't go out and attack our advertiser. Right? We want to be kind of insulated from all of that and be able to be accountable to our readers alone a huge part of why Connie and Phil Burton launched the Texan in 2019. All that to say, the paywall is there for a reason. And I understand the difficulty of transitioning from being able to have access to news free online, wherever it may be, to now getting annoying paywall bumps on every outlet you go to. But we're not like other outlets in that. This is the only way that we have revenue come in, uh, meaningful revenue come in. Sure, we have a merch store. Sure, we have, you know, uh, I mean, that's basically it. <laughs> it's that. Yeah. And otherwise, it's it's Connie and Phil that are sitting there and saying, hey, this is worth the effort for us to provide a service to folks in Texas to have straightforward, objective news that serves its readers exclusively. And they are very passionate about that. So if any other money comes in, it's out of Connie and Phil's pocket. So I get a little bit defensive about folks asking for a paywall to come down. Knowing how much work, effort, money has been put in to this project because a couple in Texas has decided that it is worth their time and effort and hard-earned money when they could also just go and retire somewhere and say, hey, we're good. We're done. We don't. Connie served in the Senate. She felt called to do that. Regardless of your political persuasion, she's kind of she kind of could just be like, OK, I'm, I'm, I'm out of serving the people of Texas in one way or another. And they've opted not to do that. I think that's admirable. And like I said, I get a little defensive when folks say, hey, take this, just, just this one article, just this one article. You, one, you can sign up for a free month. Join us. <laughs> sign up for a free month. Sure, you have to input your credit card information. 
If you get pinged, you're so you're you're helping us keep Brad fed. Okay. Yes. That's what ends important. up happening is Brad might be a little less grumpy that day because he had some food. <laughs> just a little bit. Just a little bit less grumpy. Then you're doing me a favor. You're doing me and Hayden a favor. It also goes to feed Winston, um, yes. which Mackenzie is also very passionate about. Correct. Yes. Very passionate about Winston and his little tummy. Oh, he's such a good, such a good boy. Regardless, folks, I think it is worth talking about because there is a reason for the madness. And um, if you go to any other outlet in Texas and you hit a paywall, there are 10 other ways that that outlet makes their money. And with us, it is literally just our paywall. Um, and anything else that's needed for the company is subsidized by a couple in Texas who legitimately sees the purpose, use, and utility of an organization like ours and had the gumption to go and found it and, you know, quit Put their money where their mouth is. Quit complaining from the sidelines and say, hey, we're going to enter this and make a difference. You know, um, there's there's a really important reason why the freedom of the press is enshrined in the first amendment of our United States constitution. And that's that the founders recognized how important journalism was to, to protecting our, uh, and, and holding our government accountable. Um, with, with media, I think one of the things that I en- the reason I enjoy working in journalism and working at the Texan is because we get to expand on our talents as in-depth researchers and investigative journalists to find the important, interesting facts about a story that you're not going to get anywhere else. Uh, there's there's a there's a term I like to. To, to use called point and shoot journalism, uh, where you get these very surface stories. And whenever you go and you click on these very surface stories, uh, it's so annoying whenever that full page ad pops up and takes like 10 seconds to load that's advertising that Lincoln Navigator. And like, you can't wait for the, the X button to pop up, you know, and it's like 10, 15 seconds later, finally the X pops up and, and, and then the page has to load and then you get this very surface story. <laughs> so it's, uh, for what you're getting for, for, for basically what one of these fancy cups of coffee cost. Uh, it, it, it is, it is, it is truly a substantial product that, that we all take a tremendous amount of pride in and, and everybody at the Texan is just extremely talented at, at what they do. And, um, I, I, I hope you'll continue following us. Absolutely. In short, you know, you get what you pay for. Yeah. And, um, you know, if, we could not be sitting here and doing the two articles that we just talked about today uh, that I did on the, the governor's race. I could not do unless we had money coming in. Um, and also if you were to read it at another outlet with ads, you know, it, it's a long, they were long pieces. So it would crash. <laughs> like I, when I go to the Washington examiner, my computer instantly crashes. Yeah. It is terrible. Um, that doesn't mean that stuff they write isn't worth reading. It is many, much of it is. But we don't have ads for a reason. And the ease of reading, Connie has talked ex- like extensively about not wanting, she calls it a whack a mole 
all those pop-ups that you see on websites where you go and you can't even read the article because there are so many pop-ups. Then you have a pop-up blocker and the website requests you take it down because I understand they're trying to get, you know, money in the door too. Mm -hmm. But that was mm -hmm. not a route that the Burtons wanted to go. Right. And and and, uh, and you make a really good point there that it's 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 worth your own time, preservation of your own time, and time is money um, to 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 uh, uh, avoid situations where you know the media has to to fund itself through that uh, that form, uh, and it allows you as the reader to stay focused. Uh, it it saves you time, uh, and you're just getting that higher quality product. Uh, that you're not getting anywhere else. <laughs> it, it seems like this is the one, maybe not the one, I'm sure there are other examples, but this is the one industry, and this goes for not just us, for all yeah. journalism outlets. This is the one sector industry where people think pro they should get the product for free. And it's, in what world does that actually occur? You, I mean, you would never walk into a storefront and pick something up off the shelf and go to the, the checkout and say, can I have this for free? Like you would never do that. Right. But people, and if you don't want to subscribe to any publication, you don't have to, but don't complain that yeah. people are requesting a subscription for something that costs money to produce. Yeah. And I will say folks, we understand that not everybody has, a bunch of money to throw at different luxury items that they might want to enjoy each and every month subscriptions, whatever that might look like for you. But at the same time, I do think that there is something to be said for, I know my ability to think, Oh, I 100% I'm going to get a Starbucks multiple times a week. And yet I'll be reticent to pay for something that I know is worth it mm -hmm. and might serve other people at the same time and support a company that I believe in. So I would just encourage, you know, folks, we understand that oftentimes it can be annoying to run into a paywall. All that to be said, you get what you pay for. There's a method to the madness, and we sincerely appreciate your support. We would not be able to do what we do each and every day. We enjoy our jobs. We have a good time together. It's a good team. I'm very grateful to be here, and I'm grateful for the Burtons for giving us this opportunity. And we just want to make those things clear today yeah. that... Um, we're very appreciative of those who do subscribe to us and those who listen to us and are considering subscribing folks. We hope you do. And, um, email us. But we appreciate you listening anyway. Absolutely. So 100%. There's no paywall for the pod. That's true. This is, this <laughs> is our yet. free, this is our free content folks. We come each and every week to you. Although they, they do listen to us blather and that is a public service. Them, them listening to us blather right. is a public service for us or no, is the them. public service going the other way? It's a public service for us. Oh. It's nice that you guys listen to us talk about things yes. that we may or may not know things about. You know, it's very kind and we can be insufferable, especially me and Brad. And we realize that. <laughs> Thanks for lumping me in. <laughs> <Yeah. that. laughs> no, our arguments can be insufferable. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yes, yes. We recognize that. But folks, we sincerely appreciate your support. Thank you for listening. If you made it all the way to the end of this podcast, thank you. <laughs> we really appreciate it. <laughs> we had some things to say this week. Um, and we're grateful that you tune in each and every week to listen to us. Folks, we will catch you on next week's episode. Thank you to everyone for listening. If you enjoy our show, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you want more of our stories, subscribe to The Texan at thetexan.news. Follow us on social media for the latest in Texas politics and send any questions for our team to our mailbag by DMing us on Twitter or shooting an email to editor at thetexan.news. We are funded entirely by readers and listeners like you. So thank you again for your support. 
Tune in next week for another episode of our weekly roundup. God bless you and God bless Texas. Texas.